Chapter Three of Nurse and Spy in the Union Army by Sarah Emma E. Edmonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Three. I was hurried off to Centerville, a distance of seven miles, for a fresh supply of brandy, lint, etc. When I returned, the field was literally strewn with wounded, dead, and dying. Mrs. B. was nowhere to be found. Had she been killed or wounded? A few moments of torturing suspense, and then I saw her coming toward me, running her horse with all possible speed, with about fifty canteens hanging from the pommel of her saddle. To all my inquiries there was but one answer. Don't stay to care for the wounded now. The troops are famishing with thirst and are beginning to fall back. Mr. B. then rode up with the same order, and we three started for a spring a mile distant, having gathered up the empty canteens which lay strewn on the field. This was the nearest spring. The enemy knew it, and consequently had posted sharpshooters within rifle range to prevent the troops being supplied with water. Notwithstanding this, we filled our canteens while the mini-balls fell thick and fast around us, and returned in safety to distribute the fruits of our labor among the exhausted men. We spent three hours in this manner, while the tide of battle rolled on more fiercely than before, until the enemy made a desperate charge on our troops, driving them back and taking full possession of the spring. Chaplain B.'s horse was shot through the neck and bled to death in a few moments. Then Mrs. B. and I dismounted and went to work again among the wounded. Not long afterwards, Colonel Cameron, brother of the Secretary of War, came dashing along the line shouting, come on boys the rebels are in full retreat the words had scarcely been uttered when he fell pierced to the heart by a bullet surgeon p was on the ground in an instant but nothing could be done for him his wound was mortal and he soon ceased to breathe there was no time to carry off the dead we folded his arms across his breast closed his eyes and left him in the cold embrace of death still the battle continues without cessation the grape and canister fill the air as they go screaming on their fearful errand the sight of that field is perfectly appalling men tossing their arms wildly calling for help there they lie bleeding torn and mangled legs arms and bodies are crushed and broken as if smitten by thunderbolts the ground is crimson with blood it is terrible to witness Burnside's brigade is being mown down like grass by the rebel batteries. The men are not able to stand that terrible storm of shot and shell. They begin to waver and fall back slowly, but just at the right moment Captain Sykes comes up to their relief with his command of regulars. They sweep up the hill where Burnside's exhausted, shattered brigade still lingers, and are greeted with a shout of joy such as none but soldiers, who are almost overpowered by a fierce enemy, and are reinforced by their brave comrades, can give. Onward they go, close up to the cloud of flame and smoke rolling from the hill upon which the rebel batteries are placed. Their muskets are leveled, there is a click, click, a sheet of flame, a deep roll like that of thunder, and the rebel gunners are seen to stagger and fall. The guns become silent, and in a few moments are abandoned. This seems to occasion great confusion in the rebel ranks. Regiments were scattered, and officers were seen riding furiously and shouting their orders, which were heard above the roar and din of battle. 
Captain Griffin's and Ricketts' batteries are ordered forward to an eminence from which the rebels have been driven. They come into position and open a most destructive fire which completely routs the enemy. The battle seems almost won, and the enemy is retreating in confusion. Hear what rebel General Johnson says of his prospects at that time in his official report. Quote, the long contest against a powerful enemy and heavy losses, especially of field officers, had greatly discouraged the troops of General B. and Colonel Evans. The aspect of affairs was critical. Quote. Another writes, quote, Fighting for hours under a burning sun, without a drop of water, the conduct of our men could not be excelled, but human endurance has its bounds, and all seemed about to be lost. End quote. This goes to prove that it was a desperately hard-fought battle on both sides, and if no fresh troops had been brought into the field, the victory would assuredly have been ours. But just as our army is confident of success, and is following up the advantage which it has gained, rebel reinforcements arrive and turn the tide of battle. Two rebel regiments of fresh troops are sent to make a flank movement in order to capture Griffin's and Ricketts' batteries. They march through the woods, reach the top of the hill, and form a line so completely in our rear as to fire almost upon the backs of the gunners. Griffin sees them approach, but supposes them to be his supports sent by Major Barry. However, looking more intently at them, he thinks they are rebels, and turns his guns upon them. Just as he is about to give the order to fire, Major B rides up, shouting, "'They are your supports! Don't fire!' "'No, sir, they are rebels,' replied Captain Griffin. "'I tell you, sir, they are your supports,' said Major B. In obedience to orders, the guns were turned again, and while in the act of doing so, the supposed supports fired a volley upon the gunners. Men and horses went down in an instant. A moment more, and those famous batteries were in the hands of the enemy. The news of this disaster spread along our lines like wildfire. Officers and men were alike confounded. Regiment after regiment broke and ran, and almost immediately the panic commenced. Companies of cavalry were drawn up in line across the road, with drawn sabers, but all was not sufficient to stop the refluent tide of fugitives. Then came the artillery thundering along, drivers lashing their horses furiously, which greatly added to the terror of the panic-stricken thousands crowded together in mass. In this manner we reached Centerville, where order was in some measure restored. Mrs. B. and I made our way to the stone church around which we saw stacks of dead bodies piled up, and arms and legs were thrown together in heaps. But how shall I describe the scene within that church at that hour? Oh, there was suffering there which no pen can ever describe. One case I can never forget. It was that of a poor fellow whose legs were both broken above the knees, and from the knees to the thighs they were literally smashed to fragments. He was dying, but oh, what a death was that! He was insane, perfectly wild, and required two persons to hold him. Inflammation had set in, and was rapidly doing its work. Death soon released him, and it was a relief to all present, as well as to the poor sufferer. I went to another dying one, who was bearing patiently all his sufferings. Oh, poor pale face! I see it now, with its white lips and beseeching eyes. And then the touching inquiry, 
do you think i'll die before morning i told him i thought he would and asked has death any terrors for you he smiled that beautiful trusting smile which we sometimes see on the lips of the dying saint as he replied oh no i shall soon be asleep in jesus and then in a low plaintive voice he repeated the verse commencing asleep in jesus blessed sleep while i stood beside him thus someone tapped me on the shoulder on turning round i was beckoned to the side of one who was laid in a corner on the floor with his face toward the wall i knelt beside him and asked what can i do for you my friend he opened his eyes with an effort and said i wish you to take that pointing to a small package which lay beside him keep it until you get to washington and then if it is not too much trouble i want you to write to mother and tell her how i was wounded and that i died trusting in jesus then i knew that i was kneeling beside willie l he was almost gone just ready to lay down the cross and take up the crown he signed to me to come nearer and as i did so he put his hand to his head and tried to separate a lock of hair with his fingers but his strength failed however i understood that he wished me to cut off a lock to send to his mother with the package when he saw that i understood him he seemed pleased that his last request was complied with chaplain b came and prayed with him and while he was praying the happy spirit of willie returned to him who gave it heaven gained in this instance another soul but there was mourning in that widowed mother's heart i thought oh how appropriate were the words of the poet to that lonely mother not on the tented field o terror fronted war not on the battlefield all thy bleeding victims are but in the lowly homes where sorrow broods like death and fast the mother's sobs rise with each quick-drawn breath that dimmed eye fainting close and she may not be nigh tis mother's die o oh god tis but we mothers die our hearts and hands being fully occupied with such scenes as these we thought of nothing else we knew nothing of the true state of affairs outside nor could we believe it possible when we learned that the whole army had retreated toward washington leaving the wounded in the hands of the enemy and us too in rather an unpleasant situation i could not believe the stern truth and was determined to find out for myself consequently i went back to the heights where i had seen the troops stack their guns and throw themselves upon the ground at nightfall but no troops were there i thought then that they had merely changed their position and that by going over the field i should certainly find them i had not gone far before i saw a campfire in the distance supposing that i had found a clue to the secret i made all haste toward the fire but as i drew near i saw but one solitary figure sitting by it and that was the form of a female upon going up to her i recognized her as one of the washerwomen of our army i asked her what she was doing there and where the army had gone said she i don't know anything about the army i was cooking my husband's supper and am expecting him home every minute see what a lot of things i have got for him pointing to a huge pile of blankets haversacks and canteens which she had gathered up and over which she had constituted herself sentinel i soon found that the poor creature had become insane the excitement of battle had proved too much for her 
and all my endeavours to persuade her to come with me were unavailing. I had no time to spare, for I was convinced that the army had really decamped. Once more I started in the direction of Centerville. I had not gone more than a few rods before I heard the clatter of horses' hoofs. I stopped, and looking in the direction of the fire I had just quitted, I saw a squad of cavalry ride up to the woman who still sat there. Fortunately, I had no horse to make a noise or attract attention, having left mine at the hospital with the intention of returning immediately. It was evident to my mind that those were the enemy's cavalry, and that it was necessary for me to keep out of sight if possible until they were gone. Then the thought came to me that the woman at the fire knew no better than to tell them that I had been there a few minutes before. Happily, however, I was near a fence, against which there were great piles of brush, and as the night was becoming very dark and it was beginning to rain, I thought I could remain undetected at least until morning. My suspicions proved to be correct. They were coming toward me, and compelling the woman to come and show them the direction I had taken. I decided to crawl under one of those brush heaps, which I did, and had scarcely done so when up they came and stopped over against the identical pile in which I was concealed. One of the men said, See here, old woman, are you sure that she can tell us if we find her? Oh, yes, she can tell you, I know she can, was the woman's reply. They would go away a little distance and then come back again. By and by they began to accuse the woman of playing a false game. Then they swore, threatened to shoot her, and she began to cry. All this was an interesting performance, I admit, but I did not enjoy it quite so much in consequence of being rather uncomfortably near the performers. At last they gave it up as a hopeless case, and rode away, taking the woman with them, and I was left in blissful ignorance of the mystery which they wished me to unravel, and for once in my life I rejoiced at not having my curiosity gratified. I remained there until the last echo of their retreating footsteps had died away in the distance. Then I came forth very cautiously and made my way to Centerville, where the interesting intelligence awaited me that Mr. and Mrs. B. had gone and had taken my horse, supposing that I had been taken prisoner. The village of Centerville was not yet occupied by the rebels, so that I might have made my escape without any further trouble. But how could I go and leave those hospitals full of dying men, without a soul to give them a drink of water? I must go into that stone church once more, even at the risk of being taken prisoner. I did so, and the cry of, Water! Water! was heard above the groans of the dying. Chaplain B. had told them before leaving that they would soon be in the hands of the enemy, that the army had retreated to Washington, and that there was no possibility of removing the wounded. There they lay, calmly awaiting the approach of their cruel captors, and apparently prepared to accept with resignation any fate which their cruelty might suggest. Oh, how brave those men were! What moral courage they possessed! Nothing but the grace of God and a right appreciation of the great cause in which they had nobly fought and bled, could reconcile them to such suffering and humiliation. They all urged me to leave them, and not subject myself to the barbarous treatment which I would be likely to receive if I should be taken prisoner, adding, If you do stay, the rebels will not let you do anything for us. One of the men said, 
Dr. E. has only been gone a little while. He extracted three balls from my leg and arm, and that too with his penknife. I saw twenty-one balls which he had taken from the limbs of men in this hospital. He was determined to remain with us, but we would not consent, for we knew he would not be allowed to do any more for us after the rebels came. And you must go too, and go very soon, or they will be here. After placing water within the reach of as many as could use their arms, and giving some to those who could not, I turned to leave them, with feelings that I cannot describe. But ere I reached the door, a feeble voice called me back. It was that of a young officer from Massachusetts. He held in his hand a gold locket, and as he handed it to me, he said, Will you please to open it? I did so, and then held it for him to take a last look at the picture which it contained. He grasped it eagerly and pressed it to his lips again and again. The picture was that of a lady of rare beauty, with an infant in her arms. She seemed scarcely older than a child herself. On the opposite side was printed her name and address. While he still gazed upon it with quivering lip, and I stood there waiting for some tender message for the loved ones, the unmistakable tramp of cavalry was heard in the street. A moment more, and I had snatched the locket from the hands of the dying man, and was gone. The streets were full of cavalry, but not near enough to discover me, as the night was exceedingly dark and the rain came down in torrents. One glance was sufficient to convince me that I could not escape by either street. The only way was to climb a fence and go across lots, which I immediately did, and came out on the Fairfax Road about a mile from the village, and then started for Washington on the double quick. I did not reach Alexandria until noon the next day, almost exhausted, and my shoes literally worn off my feet. Having walked all the way from Centerville in the rain, without food, together with want of sleep and the fatigue of the past week, caused me to present rather an interesting appearance. I remained there two days before I could persuade my limbs to bear the weight of my body. I then made my way to Washington, where I found my friends quite anxious lest I had fallen into the hands of the enemy. A number of men from whom I had received packages, money, etc., before going into battle, and who reached Washington two days before I did, had come to the conclusion that they had taken a pretty sure way of sending those precious things to Richmond, and therefore my arrival was rather an important event, and I was greeted with a hearty welcome. My first duty was to attend to those dying soldiers' requests, which I did immediately by writing to their friends and enclosing the articles which I had received from the hands of those loved ones who were now cold in death. The answers to many of those letters lie before me while I write, and are full of gratitude and kind wishes. One in particular I cannot read without weeping. It is from Willie's mother. The following are a few extracts. Oh, can it be that my Willie will return to me no more? Shall I never see my darling boy again, until I see him clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Thank God I shall see him then, I shall see him then. Now with all the mother's heart, torn and quivering with the smart, I yield him, neath the chastening rod, to my country and my God. Oh, how I want to kiss those hands that closed my darling's eyes, and those lips which spoke words of comfort to him in a dying hour. The love and prayers of a bereaved mother will follow you all through the journey of life. 
yes he is gone to return to her no more on earth but her loss is his eternal gain servant of god well done rest from thy loved employ the battle fought the victory won enter thy master's joy he at least had won a victory notwithstanding the defeat of the federal army yes a glorious victory end of chapter three